Let's do this again. Are you recording? <laughs> I'm already recording. Like, <laughs> what? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm tired, as always. But um, yeah, what we were talking about the Scott Pilgrim thing, right? How? Yeah, but we've done that now. I mean, we we can't repeat ourselves. That would be yeah, embarrassing for everyone involved. It's lost forever. Especially for Yoram, who screwed up his recording. <laughs> hey, everybody, and welcome to Plants and Pets, the podcast. I'm Tegan. Hi, I'm Yoram. I, I can just, like, hear from the other side of the world my parents cringing because I say the word podcast, like, podcast instead of podcast. Podcast. Yeah, the, the US way instead of the, I don't know, British way or the, the proper Australian way. <laughs> I Welcome. think we're much more used to hearing American voices on podcasts than British voices. Although I think I listen to a couple of British ones as well. There's a couple of words that I think I say more American just because my boss says it. And I found that quite amusing because our, our old boss had like a really, he has a really specific accent, which is like kind <laughs> yes. of US. So like he says like more chloroplast. So I, I like chloroplast now because that's like I was seven years in that lab and that was like the way we said chloroplast in that how, lab. How else would you But say it? Yeah, chloroplast. Chloroplast. Like plast, not plast. Plast, yeah. But it's just an accent. I mean, it doesn't, you know, the thing is like, it doesn't matter how you say words. Like, firstly, English is supposed to be a language that evolves rapidly because it's, especially now that it's spoken worldwide. And secondly, the correct English is the one that is spoken by the most people, which is now people who speak English as a second language. So the correct English is the one where you can communicate and be understood by other people. And anyone who says otherwise is a pretentious jerk. <laughs> I, that is my... I couldn't have said it better. Um, I... I <laughs> In, yeah. uh, either in German or in English, I hate it when people are like, actually, it's pronounced this nice. Like, you understood me. You know what I want to <laughs> say? There was like an episode. I mean, I think I've probably told this story many times, but where somebody was asking for soup at our canteen and they asked for like der Zuppe, which is like soup, but they used the wrong, um, what is it, a pronoun? They yeah. call it the soup, but they use the male version and it is die Zuppe, right? Yeah. It's and Zuppa. the person was like, what is Dozupa? And they were joking, but it just made me want to strangle everybody and then drown them in the soup. The male <laughs> soup. It's a male soup now. Now do you agree that it's a male soup? It's like, drown you in it. Um, um, but I think that's, that's a thing about the German language is that as soon as you have to start learning genders, and especially as soon as you have to start changing the way you say the genders, depending on the form of the, ver of the noun, you do want to drown people like you want to drown yourself you want to drown your <laughs> friends you want to drown anybody who speaks german fluently as their mother tongue like <laughs> yeah i yeah to 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 an extent yes i mean i i'm biased i'm impartial obviously to me it's not a problem to pick the right <laughs> pronoun um yeah But, speaking the most beautiful language in the world uh yeah but i still in in german like we have a lot of grammar and some of the grammar i also make mistakes and there's always like a guy it's always a guy it's never a woman and it's always a guy it's <laughs> like uh actually it's, well, it's this and that. <laughs> uh, actually you should like uh, change the word in this and that way I mean, actually it's not always a guy i had a situation where a woman also corrected me and i was talking about um <laughs> tissue culture and the word for tissue culture it's sounds very similar to what's Gewerbe Gewerbe yeah and Gewerbe what does yeah. Gewerbe mean Gewerbe is business 
Yeah, so I said it like too much like Gewerbe instead of Gewerbe. And she's like, ha, ha, ha. It sounded like you were talking about the culture of the business instead of the tissue culture. And I was like, I was talking about my science. Like, you know I work with plants. There's there's no way you accidentally misunderstood this. Yeah. Yeah, but don't don't pretend that it wasn't clear. Um, in fairness, like being corrected is very helpful, but I think we all have this thing. And I I do it in English sometimes, and I don't mean no, to. Where like never correct me ever on anything. <laughs> no, it's the thing. Like it's want- good to correct people, but like there's this thing to like then explain, and it's partially like because I misunderstood and I feel embarrassed. And I was like, oh, I thought you said lion, but actually you were saying liar. And then I explain, and it just like it just seems like I'm shaming you, but actually I, like we all do it. Yeah. We're all we're all terrible, I think. <laughs> yes. Yeah, take her message. We're all terrible. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We are, uh, we are all terrible. Um, rant of the day ends with we are all terrible. <laughs> Let's be nice to each other. Is that the yeah the moral? Yeah. Um, I also have you a rant. You know what? We shouldn't be later. nice to. I, uh, I have another. Yeah. Who <laughs> should, should rant. we? <laughs> squirrels. Squirrels are the worst. <laughs> what did they eat your crops, or what did they do? I'm, I'm now in this. Firstly, they actually just ate my irises. So I was growing irises and they literally came along and cut off the leaves. They like sheared them. So the entire leaf is still there, but cut off at the bulb. They didn't want to eat the leaf. (laughs) They just wanted to eat that really sweet bit in between the leaf and the bulb. So now that's all screwed up. Um, And then basically every morning we play a game where like every, every morning before I wake up, they come and dig up my my bulbs and like expose everything and turn them upside down and then I come back and like put the soil back around and pat things down and then the next morning they're like oh she must have hidden some peanuts under there let's dig again and they do it again Mm. and I don't know like I've looked up tricks to get rid of squirrels and cats yeah our cat is useless I think our cat is scared of squirrels um but also some of the tricks seem really mean so there was somebody who said that you can put cane pepper on your soil so that the squirrels will like not want to dig because the cayenne pepper is is like spicy for them yeah which seems really mean seems like my cat's gonna get cayenne pepper and just like be frightened for the rest of her life like the other day we looked at her the wrong way and she was scared for four hours so i don't think that's a good (laughs) idea um and then somebody (laughs) in the comments was like cayenne pepper doesn't work the squirrels at my house actually love cayenne pepper and they're taking it as like a spicier compliment to like the the bulbs that they're now eating with even greater gusto and i was like "Uh (laughs) uh-huh like So it seems already too mean and even the too mean thing, it doesn't work because the squirrels are just like jerks who like spicy Cajun irises apparently. Luckily Um, my squirrels here are not as terrible to our crops. Um, What they do is that they take the walnuts, we have a walnut tree and they bury them all over the yard and... Uh, so in springtime or throughout the year they start sprouting and suddenly you get all in your flower beds and on the lawn and everywhere you get walnuts sprouting did i put these here um so that's the only nuisance that they cause but apart from that they're pretty harmless also one of the the tips to get like keep the squirrels away from your garden is to like build a greenhouse to keep your garden in (laughs) like that's that's not practical (laughs) Um, if anybody has good tips, please let me know because I'm I'm desperate but also lazy. So some other things that have come up are human or dog hair, mm-hmm. which okay, um, uh, plant flowers that squirrel don't like, which is not helpful because they don't let anything grow; they just kill it before it gets to the flowering stage or the yeah, also being alive stage. Also, there has to be an overlap between flowers that you like and flowers that they don't like 
um, if yeah. you just adjust your garden to the sort of the negative uh, feelings of squirrels, um, it probably also won't be a very nice garden for you to be in. Uh. So far, like I would say, my squirrels seem more angry about the ornamental plants than the the produce plants. But that might just be because they're biding, biding their time until like the crops really are ready for harvest, and then they're going to go to town. Like maybe they just like they're like, I love radishes, but this one's not quite ready yet. Whereas with the plants, they can see no benefit in it for them. So they're like, if I dig up the the I don't know um, azaleas, then she'll plant some more radishes. I love radishes. Like. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what goes on in squirrel mind. If anybody else knows what's going on in squirrels' minds, please let me know so I can <laughs> deal with the little buggers. Yeah, yeah, and in a humane way. Don't set up like evil traps or something. Although yeah, I mean, maybe. I'm going to give it two more weeks of me being like feeling kind of humane towards a squirrel, and then I'm throwing chili peppers at their eyes. <laughs> then the nuclear option. Um. <laughs> you know, the thing is, like, I'll do something, and they're going to escalate it. <laughs> that's, that's just what I know. <laughs> like, it, it reminds I'm not me of win. international politics. You're just saying like they're escalating it when you are yeah. then at one point, I don't know, spraying everything in pepper spray, lighting, having like flame traps and I don't know. <laughs> I mean, there's also, there's only one of me and I know there's at least two or three squirrels in London. Like I've seen more than one at a time. Maybe there are these ultrasound uh, emission devices to scare off squirrels and small animals. Mm. I mean, it I mean, my cat would. I think my cat would just have a nervous breakdown. Yeah, I just don't. Is she? Yeah. Is your cat outside the whole time? No, no, no. She's mostly indoors, and she kind of goes outside daintily. She doesn't really like touching grass, but she kind of like steps on the stepping stones and eats a bit of grass, just enough to then come back inside and vomit on the carpet. Oh, yeah, that's and that's our, kind of her, our cats her daily well. routine. Yeah. 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 I mean, um, then you can, anyway, <laughs> you could hook up your the ultrasound thing on a timer and have it blasting, I don't know, in, in the morning when the cats are outside, um, when the squirrels would come and eat the, the bulbs. And mm. I, I think know. I'm going to like try and train an army of foxes. That would be really cool. Foxes are cool. Mm. And I think like a fox would look really nice in a little military jacket. I think that would be quite <laughs> a nice style. Like you, if you imagine it, it's quite cute, right? But foxes are cute in anything. I think it's really hard to dress up a fox and it doesn't look cute. I did also try to convince a guy that there was only one fox in the entirety of London and like <laughs> a very they just move fox. around really fast. <laughs> and then he started sending me photos of foxes. He's like, see, look, a fox. I'm like, yeah, but there's still a photo of one fox. Like, yeah. how do you know that that's not the same fox that you sent me the photo of the other day? Like, I mean, <laughs> it was a win for me. I'm getting photos of foxes. But <laughs> I don't think he got that I'm hilarious. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's to uh. be honest, it's very hard to get that you're hilarious actually <laughs> in this situation. And by hilarious, you mean highly troubled. <laughs> uh, Yoram, shall we go into your favorite plant? Yeah, let's go into my favorite plant. favorite plant my favorite plant this week is the cow pea that's also called the black eyed pea of uh, vigna unguiculata <laughs> vigna <laughs> unguiculata unguiculata whatever um the black eyed pea uh of music fame and of crop fame um, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> it's one of the well oldest done. domesticated crops um there have been um archaeological proof that uh, already like 2300 before common era um it was 
it made its way already from Africa where it was domesticated to Southeast Asia. So it was already um, domesticated before that time in Southeast, uh, in, in, uh, in Africa. There's a little bit of debate whether it was in the West or in the East of Africa because there's like conflicting evidence there. And so it's not really clear uh, where it originated or maybe it originated in both places. Um, it's a hardy little um, pea. Um, a, a grain that's um, very cool because it grows in very poor soils and in very hot and dry environments which makes it a perfect crop in West Africa where it's mostly grown today um, because yeah they they are a legume and as all legumes they fix nitrogen from the air so they don't really rely on um, they don't re uh, rely on nitrogen rich soils so they can mm -hmm. they themselves help enrich the soil and nitrogen um, with their activity and um, yeah they can grow I think the optimal temperature was around like 30 degrees Celsius for them to be, to be grown so not great here in Central Europe but perfect for West Africa and that's why it's a staple crop there for many people and what I found interesting about this was that it's a very protein rich um, crop that's uh, it's sometimes called like the poor man's meat because it has so much protein in there it's, and it's a complete protein source it has all the essential amino acids and it has also pretty high caloric um, content comparable to like grain cereals so it's is it is it rare for um legumes to be to have all of the amino acids is this kind of no, an I outlier think it's among in many plants i think it's most plants right would that have but not many plants well, for are themselves great. they for themselves they do but like to produce them in the um what we eat in in the food source yeah i don't because know i think that's one of the things about um soy right is that it's missing lysine and something else because i i feel like oh, actually I should we not, but i don't yeah i think we feed our um pigs and uh, like maybe also cows but i think mainly pigs with soy products but then we have to supplement it with um lysine and some another amino acid because soy itself doesn't have enough of these to really like be sufficient for the animal so yeah no i, I find sure i find things here that say that uh, soy is a complete source of protein and maybe it's something else that needs to be supplemented then. But just from the snippet that Google gives here, it says, unlike most other plant-based proteins, soy protein is a complete protein, which makes it sound like most plant protein sources are not complete. Um, I actually don't know. But uh, the black-eyed pea the, or cow pea is definitely a complete source. Although, Is it a cow pea because cows eat it or because it looks like a cow? Uh, it looks it has like this i rather like the name black eyed pea because it has this little eye spot on the pea and i don't really think it looks like a cow maybe it has like this black and white pattern that you could associate with a cow it's definitely used also as f uh, f uh, fodder for animals it's mm -hmm. one of these like dual use crops that can that's ready for human consumption but also can be used to feed to animals um so you can produce from the same crop um animal meat and um plant product that you can eat uh from from sort of from the same land um yeah and there is a it's now also very popular in um south the southern united states and that mm -hmm. is due to the slave trade because the when the slaves were brought from western africa to the u.s um they brought with them 
this crop. And for a long time, it sort of stayed um, within the slave community there and was um, looked uh, down upon from other from the other population, from the other people. Um, but slowly, it made sort of their way into now a signature dish in the th southern U uh, United States. That's a black-eyed pea. Um, and the the way I found this was actually through an article that uh, talked about um, how this uh, very resistant crop is also struggling now with the higher temperatures and longer arid seasons um, due to the climate crisis. Um, mm -hmm. And but there are breeding programs uh, on the way where they try to take wild varieties that still grow um, that are not gr ready for sort of commercial growing, but they are more resistant to to drought and heat, and they manage to. Breed Breed with a conventional breeding programs to get these traits into the commercial lines and um, they are this creating. is kind of a theme for many crops the idea of using wild relatives and crossing in like wild tomato or wild wheat varieties with what we have cultivated to try and increase the genetic diversity and have like abiotic or biotic resistant traits yeah um, I actually found this on the website it's called the wild relatives to crops or um Crop wild relatives, crops wild relatives. We can put the link in the show notes. Yeah, um, but it's an interesting website that has that talks a lot about um, yeah breeding programs using uh, yeah the wild relatives and uh, the genetic diversity that's still within these wild communities of plants and how we can use them be, uh, because we sort of when we breed plants we need to introduce fresh genetic material from time to time to to fight off some like detrimental effects of sort of inbreeding for a long time within production lines but that's it already um i just i, I just knew the the word black eyed peas from uh from the band the group <laughs> yeah from the group uh mm. and i knew that it is an actual plant uh, but i found it quite interesting to to read about uh, the importance of it in in west africa and how mm. they, they grow them together with millet, I think, in sort of combination plots, um, and then harvest them together. And you can eat the, the, the green parts and the, be uh, the, the peas as well uh, together. So it's a very versatile and very good crop. And many like um, traditional uh, farming practices would use this rotation system where you would have um, ground with nothing on it, ground with your kind of desired crop and then another ground with something legumous because the legumes would kind of refix the soil add some more nitrogen back into it and then they could be um yep. made more fertile for the next year again this is before we got obviously the the artificial kind of nitrogen processes yep. and fertilizers yeah yeah um i have a quick just uh, kind of correction there i think terminologically speaking we're now it's better to say enslaved people as opposed to slaves mm. for people um just because it's a language thing where we differentiate like people are not slaves they are enslaved by other people they're made into slaves so i think that's an important yeah distinction that's right diversity in the class science um actually I am talking about Georgiana Simpson today, Georgiana Rose Simpson, who was born in 1865 and she passed away in 1944. And she was not a plant scientist, um, but still very important in the context of um, higher education, which is something we're really passionate about. Um, and she was actually a philologist. Do you know what a philologist is, Joram? No, I try to... <laughs> No, isn't isn't I thought the the syllable Phil means friend of. 
I thought philosophy is the friend of knowledge or friend of wisdom or something. Uh, I mean, yeah, like philic, like hydrophilic means that yeah. you love like water. And so, um, philo- so <laughs> what was it? Philology? F- yeah. I'm not sh- It's not about friendship. Um, <laughs> it's the study of language, but language in oral and written historical sources. So like mm-hmm. language within history. Um, and it says on the wiki page that it's the intersection of textual criticism, literary criticism, history, and linguistics. So quite complicated. Um, and yeah, so Georgina Rose Simpson was a philologist and she's also linked as kind of friend of the podcast because her um, speciality subject was actually German. So she did her um, master's degree on... Um, an early middle high German poem called the phonology of Merigato. Maybe you've heard of this and studied this in school, Yoram? No. What? Well, how no. is it? What's the, the German, uh, the phonology of... Oh, no, sorry. That's the name of her thesis, but it was actually, sorry, that's, I'm wrong. That's the name of the thesis itself, but she's um, ex- examined the poem, this middle high German poem mm-hmm. in her um, master's thesis. And then she went on to do a dissertation at the age of 55, um, Herder's conception of Das Volk. Do you know about Herder? Mm, I know about yeah. her, of Herder. <laughs> okay, well, there you go. I so went she, to a part French school. I learned a lot about French <laughs> authors. I hardly know any German it's, authors. It's just excuses at this stage. Um, she was also American. She was from the US. So, I mean, like... <laughs> her guess as good as yours except this is actually her field of expertise and (laughs) she in fact received her German her PhD um, in this Herder's conception of Das Volk in 1921 um, in German as kind of um, either the language or the largest subject I'm not really sure but why she was so significant is because she was the first African-American woman to receive a PhD in the United States mm-hmm. um, so just for those of you who might have some, mili- some familiarity with this subject there are a few other um, black women who also received their PhD at kind of a similar time so there's Sadie Tanner Mossel, Eva B. Dykes and Anna Julia Cooper who all got doctoral degrees kind of in the same time period. Um, But Georgiana Simpson is uh, the first one from what I could find on the internet. Um, And obviously she's therefore a very important figure in the context of the civil rights movement um, and of course the segregation that was happening. And yeah, unsurprisingly, she experienced a lot of racial prejudice while she was going through her studies. So she was enrolled at the University of Chicago And basically, she was invited to reside in the dormitory, the women's dormitory. Of course, it was gender segregated as well at that time. But she got protests from white students. And another female um, asked her to leave. She then kind of refused to leave. But then this was overruled by the president of the university, who's like, no, you really have to leave. So unfortunately for Simpson, she was basically forced out of being physically present on campus and she managed to continue her studies by basically um, doing it by correspondence and from home and kind of doing like summer courses and stuff. So she persevered, but in the context of not a very welcoming environment. Um, Another thing I like about her is that she herself 
was taught um, and kind of encouraged initially to study German, which kind of started her on her career, by another um, African-American woman, Dr. Lucy E. Morton. She's a doctor, actually a medical doctor, so um, uh -huh. not a PhD before her. Um, and also uh, Georgiana herself was teaching German immigrant communities. So there's kind of an another connection to like communities who were probably also a little bit um, displaced in the context of um, the, the US at the time. So yeah, um, really important person in, in the history of the US and, and generally for us. And yeah, her name is Georgiana Simpson, who was yeah active from 1915 to 1944 and um, studied and got her PhD via the University of Chicago. Let's talk, talk, talk about bias, bias, bias. Bye. Bye. It's my turn. And um, I hope everybody remembers a lot about foxes from the beginning of the show because you made such a great joke about it. Um, I feel like I've told that joke before. And when I inevitably try to tell it again next week or like in two weeks time, please just stop me and say like, Tegan, you've reached the Alzheimer's stage of repeating yourself many, many times. Shut up. No, no one I wants think to what, hear you, this. what you're trying to use is the humor effect uh, for information <laughs> retention, which is mm. very straightforward. It's that we remember information better if it's re uh, presented in a humorous form. Um, okay, but what, what, what actual information am I trying to make people retain from my ridiculous fox story? Uh, maybe that there is foxes living in the cities. Yeah, that's not great. Um, yeah, it's, it's the best you can do. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> just derailing all over the place here. No, I mean, I don't really um. have a lot about this humor effect because it's very straightforward. Um, the mm. idea is that it suppresses negative feelings and increases well-being because we're sort of laughing, we're feeling happy. And both of these things help us with uh, retaining knowledge. Um, they help our memory. And so that's why we... Um, remember um, yeah remember things that are joked about better than things that are just where we're just presented with the plain facts but I think what also plays into this um, is a little bit of storytelling as well it's something that I, I will like touch uh, later during uh, another segment a little, uh, as well but I think a joke is in in um, in structure it's just a very short story that has a punchline but it has a sort of a setup and then something happening and then the punchline and um this uh, our brains are wired to react to stories and i think this also helps with re retaining knowledge that's presented in in form of a story or in a joke and then together with um like having the positive feelings about it it's it's very effective and yeah for me it's just things like um no such thing as a fish the podcast that's where they they mm -hmm. have lots and lots of fun facts and they make a lot of jokes about it and always something sticks there and i think if they would just present the facts without the jokes i would hardly remember anything there in fact a little spoiler for our upcoming episode for the plant book club um there is a book that employs uh, we're reading a book that employs very few jokes and very um a very large number of just like plain present plainly presented facts and it's yeah. really hard to retain any information from this book um and so i you've got to you've got to admit it's it's more suitable to joke about some topics than other topics and it's sure. it, 
like, it flows more naturally when talking about you don't want to talk about like the second world war the Shoah, with jokes so that people remember it it's not it doesn't work always but i think in in science communication it's an important lesson to know that if you have a little bit of of humor or maybe a little bit of like self-deprecation or a little bit of like a light-hearted approach to your science when you talk about it um, people will remember more of it than if you are all serious about it and just present the facts. And I think that even worked for me in a in a professional context when I was at conferences or, or her talks, whenever the speaker was a little bit lighthearted and made smaller jokes or like f fun little anecdotes, I remembered much more of the talk than, mm. than if it would just be like, yeah, and then we did this experiment and we uh, observed this uh, phenomenon and then we did the next experiment and we observed the next thing. Um, so, and maybe that's something that you, you said you're going to mention it later. So maybe that's this is related to this. But um, there's also evidence that people can increase their trust in scientists if they see the scientists as people, because although they find scientists believable based on the facts they tell, they are sometimes suspicious of the motivations of the scientists. Yeah. So if they see kind of scientists being more real and like acting like real humans, they're more likely to see them as having like true motivations instead of being like some sort of big pharma conspiracy something something yeah and i think it's it's one of these things that are hard to um just apply in a straightforward way if you don't really if you're not really a funny person um it can feel very forced if you would start suddenly work jokes into your presentation from like one day to the other so we've also all been to talks where there's been <laughs> yeah. like this like uh, awkward for us thing yeah, going on. Cringe is not good, I think, for for knowledge it's retention. It's also memorable, though. In fairness, but you don't really remember what it was about. You just remember the cringe. You just remember how Maybe. unhappy and uneasy you felt when, like, a joke absolutely didn't land or was like borderline offensive or straight up offensive. Unfortunately, no, I've seen that as well. No, offensive is a different thing, though. I would argue. But anyway, um, so. If you if you are the person to um, consider yourself funny, consider maybe working a little bit of humor into your even into your professional slides. Like keep it like classy and and appropriate to the to the occasion, and maybe don't um, do it for like a big grant proposal when you when nobody in the room knows you. And um, but within like lab groups within seminars if you talk to other researchers it can be a, a useful thing and especially if you talk to the public if you do any sort of outreach um, chances are you get much more response if if you are a little bit funny <laughs> absolutely technically feasible um this is a it's not, a work in it's progress not, jingle <laughs> no i love it it's perfect um this is not going to be a constant segment that we always do but a few weeks ago we discussed the idea of phd projects that are insane just you know something <laughs> where your supervisor is like oh so your phd project is going to be that you'll recreate life um or something <laughs> um and i think the example we gave is that there was a news article where they possibly, maybe, putatively, probably not, but potentially found proteins on a meteorite. And um, the article was prefaced by, like, every single kind of um, cautious uh, <laughs> statement in front of it. 
So the one I found this week is via the Nature Briefing, but it's originally from an article on Quanta. And it's the fact that people are looking for life in really weird places. So um, they've been finding microorganisms um, on the base, basically um, the bottom of the sea and really, really deep underground. And obviously these microbes are using something different to live Mm -hmm. because they don't really have access to the ultimate source of power, which is the sun usually. Um, So one example is that they could thrive on energy um, such as hydrogen produced by naturally radioactive isotopes. And I'm quoting that because I'm not really sure I understand how that's working. That sounds very complicated um, for those little, like we can't work out how to do that properly. So how are they doing it? I don't know. Um, But basically because they are living like at the bottom of nowhere, they have to grow very, very slowly. Um, So it may take them 100 years or even 1,000 years to divide just once. So I would like to propose this as (laughs) the new PhD project for our um, Schwarzman and Amerigo PhD lab and see how how they run with this. Oh my god! <laughs> study, study this organ, and I like that it also probably has some like radioactive stuff. So it's got like a danger element as well. So you it need, might like, seem boring because you're waiting a hundred years for a bacteria to divide, but it's also terrifying because you're trying to feed them with radioisotopes. Yeah, it's it's an amazing, crazy uh, project. It reminds me of a project I've re- uh, seen for real um, that worked with one of these like really weird um, bacteria. It was a, a microbacterium that was so small that with a light microscope you could hardly see it um, where usually like mi- you can uh, resolve bacteria pretty easily usually on a mi- light microscope. Mm-hmm. And this one was feeding on like benzene and chlorinated um, like six carbon compounds uh, mm-hmm. like chlorinated benzene rings uh, and so on as its electron source and they were actually growing them um, uh, uh, on anaerobic conditions and because they couldn't con- constantly supply them with these chemicals they um, they, they needed an electron source for their for their uh, metabolism they were actually putting them on batteries they had like electrodes poking in there and these tiny tiny bacteria were attached to these electrodes and would grow very very slowly um taking off uh the end like the energy literally from the electric current there um to divide uh, because they haven't fully figured out yet how they grow in the wild they could no they could grow them on these artificial sources but chlorinated benzene rings are not usually found in the deep sea so they don't mm. really know what their real metabolism is in uh, in the wild but um and until they could figure this out they had to give them sort of the force feeding by just pumping electrons through them and they would grow on that and that was already pretty insane like i don't i i imagine working on these i don't know if they were like a phd lab or if they were all like postdocs and stuff um but working on these very weird like very slow cultures with very specific conditions and if they get like a speck of air in there they die from the oxygen and so on so really really hard to work with but not as hard as the 100 year division microbes with that um i have a question i have a comment and then i have a question (laughs) um i have a question i have a question about um 
Well, not me. Uh, it's not me, really, who has a question. Um, I have a question from one of our listeners from Twitter, from the Petri Dish podcast. They asked us on Twitter, um, I know uh, I know. plants have a whole microbiome situation going on with their roots, um, so like legumes, right? Um, but do they have a, uh, anything like that in other spots, like leaves or flowers or something? Yes. And, um, yeah, the short answer is yes. Uh, do, do you want to answer first what you know about this? Um, I mean, yes, I know they do. And they have also external and internal um, microbiomes like on the leaf. So there's stuff that's kind of on the leaf surface and then the stuff that's more internal as well. Um, and this is actually a subject that I think is getting a lot more interest recently. So um, people are now kind of trying to view plants and especially in the, the context of crops where this makes a really big difference, not just as like an organism, but as a kind of like hollow organism which encompasses not only the plant but also all of the microbes that live in the soil and then on its leaves and these these microbes are really important they they help prevent protect the the plant from disease and like help it against um abiotic stresses as well so they're i mean it's the same as us it's actually for every organism so we have things that live in our gut and live on our skin and they basically keep us alive so yeah yeah Yeah, I um, because I knew much less about the topic than you do, I reached out to Dr. Ashley Shade, who, who is an assistant professor <laughs> cool. at Michigan State. Um, I was hinted uh, and uh, or directed towards her also on Twitter. Somebody said, like, you should ask her. She's, she's the expert on that. And she kindly got back um, to me and she said, yeah, the short answer is that, yes, plants have microbiomes all over them, not just at their roots. And they can live in and on the seeds, the leaves, the stems, the flowers. And while there is many of these uh, microbiome members are sort of uh, only lowly abundant and very transiently detected, you don't find them all the time. And if when you find them, you find only very few of them. There's a subset of these microbes in, in the microbiome that are very persistent and abundant. And they are found in very specific spots. So they sort of have an intended home, a place where yeah, they live the best and where mm -hmm. they probably have some synergistic effects to the plants otherwise the plant would try to get rid of them and they could they as you said they could uh, find them involved in uh, plant immune responses uh, promoting plant growth and something that is also i think very common in on our bodies is that they exclude pathogens just by growing in places already so there's no empty spot so a pathogen can't grow there because there's mm. the place is already occupied with something else um and that's uh this is, this is kind of one of the idea of probiotics so yeah. often if you as a human are on antibiotics for too long you might then get for example a fungal infection where you don't want a fungal infection um because the antibiotics have killed out all the good bacteria that are basically helping keep things other other things away yeah And so, yeah, that's that's the answer to the question. Yeah, there's microbes all over the plant. Um, some of them just sort of happen to be there because they're exposed to an environment where these microbes exist. But uh, a lot of these microbes have very specific roles and live in very specific places on the plant, in and uh, on the plant. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. If you have any... Um, yeah. Sorry, can you just shout out again who asked the question and also the um, professor who you asked? the answer uh, so i asked professor dr ashley shade um, from the michigan state university where she's an assistant professor working on plant uh, microbio uh, micro microbe interactions and um, the question was asked by the petri dish podcast uh, which is a podcast that deals um, 
It's at Dish Podcast on Twitter, uh, and they deal with all sorts of microbiology. Uh, um, and they're like I've seen them uh, around on on Twitter from time to time, and they're nice people. Uh, yeah. So if you have any questions for us, especially for next week for our big 50th anniversary oh, yeah. episode where we have so many things planned, um, we would really like to answer your questions. Um, during this episode so send them in send us any and all questions uh, i think it's fair to say that you can ask us anything and we'll try our best to answer um plant related or not this is where the fun begins this is where the fun begins this is where the fun begins do you want to go first I have something that's not so much fun as kind of cool news. So um, there is something in the UK called the UK Research and Innovation, which is, according to Wikipedia, a quasi-autonomous non-governmental organization. I'm not sure really what that means, but basically um, it's an organization which gets to direct research and funding for, for research and innovation, which somehow also comes through the science budget. I don't know. Quasi-autonomous is a bit strange to me um but in any case it's a big <laughs> it's a big thing um and it's really cool to hear that they have recently man i have to find the thing they've recently picked a um new leader mm -hmm. and the leader happens to be a plant biologist and you might oh. have actually heard of her you might be familiar with the name it's oseline Liza. Um, so she works at Cambridge and she kind of works on developmental biology, um, I think branching and um, oxen and how that de drives the development of plants. Um, but she's now not in charge of, but the, the director of this important funding agency. Mm. So it's kind of nice because it's it's nice to, to have plants get a little say in in these kind of things. Yeah. I'm sure she won't be biased, but um, yeah, I think plants are sometimes overlooked in these things. Yeah, I think it's... Even if she will not have the power to just say like, okay, now 80% of our funding goes toward plant science, um, just having the visibility there in, of not just having the classic sort of math, physics, chemistry and engineering people and maybe a little bit of medicine um, and human related stuff, but also like having plant biology being represented there is a good thing. Um, Yeah, and the other thing about um, Otteline herself is, um, so this is actually the announcement I found via Science Magazine, um, and they have a quote from her from a couple of years ago in an interview she did with a biologist. And um, she states, the prevailing culture in science is about competition and still about the lone brilliant-minded a brilliant mind type scientist it's individualistic narrow-minded self-promotion so they say that she's been a voice for kind of improving the culture in research and also increasing diversity in research so we go away from that kind of gross old-fashioned idea of like the more of a loner you are the more brilliant you must be which mm. is also really promising i think um, I have something, uh, sort of a follow-up thing from last week when I talked about this article that said that um, the global emissions for carbon dioxide only dropped 5.5% um, uh, in uh, as a response to the current um, pandemic. And now there's been a new article uh, from the Washington Post where the headline says global emissions plunged an unprecedented 17% during the coronavirus pandemic. 
and mm-hmm. um, that sort of like a friend sent me this and was like, hey, you said 5% and it's not actually 5%, it's 17. And I looked into this and while it's true that there was a 17% drop, this was only uh, early in April for a few days um, where it dropped uh, momentarily uh, by this amount. For the whole year, it's about a 5%. So um, especially now with uh, everything sort of starting again. And there's even a fear now that... Um, we will sort of bounce back harder from this and even emit more because after the uh, global financial cl- uh, crisis, there was also a big drop around like 5% or I think even more. Um, but then the next year, uh, the emissions rose again to a higher degree than what was lost before. So um, yeah, it's both is true. There, is, uh, there was a short-term drop and the, the article has a couple of interesting infographics um, although also some that I find a little bit misleading because the the y-axis goes from um, zero to minus fifteen percent, but spans the entire vertical thing, so it looks like a drop of almost a hundred percent, but it's just fifteen percent. Um, uh, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it's an uh, interesting read to that, so I just wanted to follow that up from from last week. I have a nice segue from that, which is kind of related to the current um, coronavirus pandemic and also related to graphs. Um, I think we've mentioned before the spin-off, which I believe is a New Zealand website. And I think we've also specifically mentioned some coronavirus-related cartoons, which have been featured on the spin-off. Um, and I just want to share a site now. It's called um, The Bumper Toby Morris and Susie Wills COVID-19 Box Sense set and Toby and Susie have been doing illustrations um, and kind of animated illustrations about what's happening with the COVID um, pandemic and these are really great um, illustrations they're they're really they're simple and they are deliberately designed to increase science communication to make it easier to understand um, the different issues that are raised, the idea of flattening the curve or why you just visiting one friend can have kind of a carry-on effect and get a chain. Um, And also even discussing things like how scientific jargon can differ from um, normal speech. So they kind of say, oh, when scientists say this, what actually is meant is this. So if the scientist is saying, for example, we want to eliminate COVID, this is actually the way of saying we want to decrease the cases to almost zero within a certain um, area. So they're really beautiful um, animations and they're really informative, but they're also quite positive as well. So it's... I would really encourage you to check it out. They have also like some alternatives to handshakes. Um, They have the concept of the lag, the concept of the bubble, why you should use face masks and and when they can be useful and when they won't be useful Um, and just a whole lot of different things. So we'll put the link in the show notes, but I really encourage you to go and check that out. And for me, I find that they don't leave me with a bad feeling um, in case some of you are feeling a bit overloaded by the the COVID news at the moment. They, I think they're quite... um, uplifting and informative as opposed to being um too heartbreaking so mm. yeah yeah you actually have seen a couple of them um like sort of flying around the, the internet they've, and I, they've been making the the rounds yeah 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 especially the one with the exponential growth and how like in just having a few people breaking the transmission will uh, lead to a large number of people not being infected just because of the Mm -hmm. exponential growth of the 
transmission. Yeah, yeah, this one really hit it off, actually. Yeah. Yeah, yeah really cool. Go check it out. Yeah, uh, link in the show notes. Uh, I have uh, something completely different now. Um, Can I just quickly go to another cartoon then before we go yeah. to the different thing? So I also saw something called Bird and Moon, which I haven't come across before. I think I saw it this time again through the Nature Briefing, but I'm not 100% s- sure. But it's science and nature cartoons. And I encourage you to go on there if you're having a kind of less great day or and you just want something that's like really cute and also informative. So... Um, they're they're cartoons on a whole lot of different science and nature themes but lots of cute animals um and often this thing where you have like three panels that have kind of actually information in a a beautiful way and then the fourth one is a bit silly as well which kind of makes you um feel quite pleased so um yeah i really like one that's about turtle crossing um they kind of say what you should do if you find a turtle crossing the road and this is again very informative they're explaining why the turtles might be crossing the road whether you should help um and then what what you can do to help um and yeah one of them one of the the treatments like involves holding a turtle by its hind legs and kind of supporting his tummy and like pushing it to help it cross which is also quite adorable um but it is backed by scientific <laughs> information, so there's there's also, like, yeah, real quality here as well. I, I recommend them. Go have a look and just, like, click random a few times and enjoy yourself and learn something as well. Um, it's <laughs> on, something else that you can try and see um, if you're better than us is um, a quiz that I found about um, knowing things about eucalyptus. Um, mm. from abc.net which is a I guess Australian broadcasting broadcasting thing. corporation not uh, the American one the Australian one and it looks like a BuzzFeed style quiz but it's actually has a lot of substance to it which I quite enjoyed it's about yeah it's 10 questions about eucalypt is it eucalypt or eucalyptus uh, anyway uh, eucalyptus I think is the genre right but then it's they're, they're called eucalypts like common and then they always give you explanations to uh, for the correct answers and so on. And uh, as it turns out, I'm as much of an uh, Australian eucalyptus expert <laughs> as Tegan is because we scored equally on this uh, thing, which is seven out of ten points. So if you but how many did you guess? I a couple. <laughs> I got yeah. Lucky. How many? I don't know. Like every time they ask about regions in Australia, like how would I know? I also guessed a few of those. It's like the the one where it's like, where does this flower come from? I guessed in an informed way because it comes from my region, um, which is also a clue for our listeners. If you've been paying attention, you'll know now where that eucalyptus comes from when you um, do the quiz. Yeah. But the the other one was like, where was the first eucalyptus discovered? In which state? And it's like who knows and also the state it turns out to be is the state that is just the most unlikely like just really yeah. ridiculous um, but a couple of them I didn't guess um, but then like the, the true or false things are very easy to get just from the implications and so on um, So it is multiple choice guys you don't have to actually like you don't have to really know stuff you will learn stuff but I learned things, and there's pretty pictures of eucalypts yeah and I learned things about eucalyptus and so I um, yeah I enjoyed doing this little quiz and scoring just as well as Tegan which makes me Australian or her German I don't know one of the two yeah I think you guys ruined me that's my <laughs> excuse um, I have some other kind of goodish news via um, science again mm-hmm. so there was something that was published just two days ago um, or 
four days ago by the time you listen to this um science magazine has an article called united states relaxes rules for biotech crops um and it's something which was put into uh action when obama was around but then trump kind of played around with things so like released new rules withdrew the rules something something trump 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 um and so now they have kind of a final revised rule um on what's going to happen and the idea is basically that engineered plants which have minor changes which is only changing a few amino acids or deleting something which is the same kind of change that you could get from traditional breeding will um not be regulated they will not be considered as much of a genetically modified organism as something that has like a whole new gene put in from a different species so i think um that's good news from our point of view generally because we we see that um gmo can be used like um genetic modification in the way we use it like this it can be a tool to speed up the breeding process and it's not really different at the yeah. at the um dna level from changes that we already make by breeding techniques like uv mutagenesis so yeah. the fact that the the regulations line up makes a lot of logical sense to me um so I have something that's that could be very interesting to you, Tegan. Um, it's something. It's a very straightforward, simple tool to detect UTI, um, mm -hmm. and uh, it's a. Uh, it's based on. We should say UTI means urinary tract infection for those of you yeah. playing at home who haven't had the joy of having a UTI. Uh, which means you have bacteria in your bladder and they cause an infection and usually you're first, first you in your urinary tract then in your bladder and if you're really lucky it goes all the way to your kidneys and you start bleeding yeah like um, peeing blood is the key phrase here oh yeah <laughs> um but yeah usually you don't have bacteria there um and uh so what would usually be done for lab tests, you would like take urine samples and you put them on, on different media plates and grow them for like a couple of days to a week and then to, to see if something grows. And um, that takes a while and needs lab equipment. And now researchers have uh, created a device that works like a fidget spinner. Um, finally, what? a good use for a fidget spinner. Um, where <laughs> you own several fidget spinners. No, fidget spinner is the one like like nonsense mm -hmm. gadget that i don't own like i play around with like a little massage ball here to keep my hands like busy okay. um i like fidgeting but i don't have any fidget spinners um okay sorry so you have a uti fidget spinner now now there's a uti fidget spinner where you um, just spin your uh, urine sample through a filter um, and it just takes two like spins and then you have the whole sample uh, push through there the filter lets everything through apart from bacteria and then um, there is a dye on the filter that within 45 minutes um, discolors so uh, you can very quickly check if you have bacteria in your uh, in your urine and that whole thing works without any lab equipment you just need you just need a spinner and uh, then you can also do <laughs> antibiotic sensitivity tests within 120 hours or something um, that are read on there oh, on wow. the same filter disk. Um, mm -hmm. So you can see, okay, you have something there and then you can test it f uh, if, if the co most common antibiotics would work on this and then you can start treatment. Um, and the whole thing is uh, tested in India uh, where they used it in like remote locations where they don't have access to standard like lab equipment um, and mm. it worked very well there and they're very hopeful that this can be a sort of point of um, uh, point of need uh, 
tool to, yeah. to detect and treat UTI. Just, just to underline, this can get really, really serious. So your kidney should not have bacteria in it. So this can be like, I don't know deadly, but it can be like, maybe even deadly, it can be really a huge problem um, if it goes untreated. And it is also a problem which predominantly happens in women, um, mainly because the for the for the UTI to happen, for the for the bacteria to get into the bladder, um, it has to go up the, the urethra, the urinary tract, and that's just shorter in women. So it does tend to be prevalent in women, um, which can sometimes be a problem for, for treatment. And, and it requires often antibiotics to... to flush it out yeah not in germany though in germany we have very fancy herbal tea that's enough you don't need anything <laughs> here yeah and then you get the uti like two months later and then another two months later and they're like it's really weird like it's like no it's not weird it's like it's really this is what we're happens not when treating you treat it and still it's not going it away <laughs> like what is that all about i just don't understand um, um yeah Uh, if you do get a UTI when you're in Germany, consider immigrating. That's, <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Just do like a short, short-term stay in any other like civilized country in Europe, um, which is pretty much any other country where they give you antibiotics if you have a bacterial infection. Yeah, I mean, this is your arm has clearly never had a UTI because, like, as like if you've had a UTI, the last thing you want to do is get on a plane. Like, honestly, <laughs> yeah. like, you're just like, I am not leaving my bathroom for the next five days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true yeah. enough. Um, yeah, so that's... Uh, And guys, it's just your body. So if you're feeling really icky by the fact that we just talked about UTIs, reevaluate your lifestyle and think about why talking about a bladder infection is causing you more discomfort than if we were talking about a sore finger. Go um, do that homework. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sort of ties in with something that we had on the blog uh, this week about um, using CD cases to analyze root Does growth. <laughs> To me, it's like a, a simple, straightforward approach. I mean, this is oh, not yeah. a, this is not like from homemade supplies, but the idea is to have like a very cheap um, technique that doesn't rely on on traditional lab equipment to yeah. do lab work. Um, so it is like a literal like fidget spinner that has it's, been. I think it's based on hacked. It's it's probably like a handheld centrifuge. It's also something you could call yeah. it. Yeah, it's okay. probably like I, I couldn't see the pictures because the the paper is behind the paywall. Um, mm -hmm. But, no, uh, there's figures there, Yoram. I can see them already. If I click on a thing, it says um, rent or buy when article. I hover, when I hover over the link, I can see some figures, but then as soon as I click on it, they hide. Um, whoever published this, if you happen to have a ReadCube link um, that we could see or a preprint that you've already put on a server, that would be brilliant. Yeah. Um, but I think it's just a ball bearing and um, sort of the sample holders around it and you spin it. Um, no, like I'm looking, hover over the link here. I'm, I'm looking and it's no, literally I, a fidget spinner. No, no, um, they haven't. Uh, I found a way to access the paper and they have a fidget spinner for comparison. But you have like a, a plastic ah, tray <laughs> that has a ball bearing in the center. You hold it like a fidget spinner sort of okay. between your middle finger and your thumb. Um, and then you have the, the urine sample uh, in there and... Um, <laughs> I think yeah, the sample is in the, in the center and then you spin it and then it gets sort of uh, with the centripetal force pushed outwards through your filter um, and then you can see the discoloring of the filter. Uh, it turns red if there's bacterial growth on there. And they say, um, yeah, it's, it's less than 60 seconds of spin time to get most of the effect. I think even 20 seconds, you get already like half of the sample pushed through there I, I, i like the idea of like what are you doing i'm taking my pee for a spin like <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh 
<laughs> I amuse myself. <laughs> um, so yeah, so that's the uh, um, that's the fidget spinner that's finally used for something good. It looks like like they have very pretty figures. I have to say, I'm 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 a um, a sucker for these for for well designed figures in papers mm -hmm. uh, because that makes it so much easier to understand the paper just by scrolling through it. Um, so yeah, it's a nice paper published in Nature Biomedical Engineering from Isaac Michael. Um, yeah, link in the show notes. I have another kind of good news story and then a day in the life of Tegan. So we can do one, none, or both. Um, I, I have a, a short rant that I want to do um, related okay. to good my news life. Story. Do your good news good story Good news story is, is really quick. Um, there's a something again in science. I'm, I'm apparently really science heavy today. Um, which is that there's a long-acting injectable drug that prevents HIV infections. So um, I think this is only a preprint at the moment, this study, but it has been put up on a server. I mean, it hasn't been peer-reviewed, so you always have to take it with a huge serving of salt. Um, but it's the idea that you can, there's now an antiretroviral drug that you can take as an injection, and then you only have to take the injection every two months. And that would be... Um, alternative to taking daily pills which um mm. as i don't know many women of sexual material age knows is kind of a pain in the butt so an injection sounds like a nice thing um and this is uh, to give protection for uninfected people to mm -hmm. from preventing them from getting hiv so um that's kind of a nice thing yeah yay science Yeah, and uh, HIV is one of these like very difficult viruses. Um, I, for a different podcast in German, I uh, talked about vaccinations and why we don't have an AIDS vaccine yet. Um, and it's just like one of these like this the virus covers itself in like human like proteins or human proteins, so the immune system can't really detect it. Um, and if the immune system can't do anything, um, it can't. It can't build an immunity if, if it can't tell the virus apart from other things. And, you know, also those political reasons. <laughs> yeah, sure. There's the, like for We conveniently ignored the HIV pandemic for or epidemic. I'm not sure which, which yeah. level it was for Although, a long time. Like, when I researched Ooh. this, the, the idea, like, if there's people who, have, who can get uh, through a disease and then have natural immunity, that means that we can likely make a vaccine for it. And then it's only a question of finding the time and money to actually do this. And this is where often yeah. we have the problem. Um, but there is no known um, natural immunity to HIV. There's nobody who got infected with HIV and then recovered uh, naturally and then is immune with immune system, which doesn't mean that it's absolutely impossible to find a vaccination, but it's mm. much, much less likely than for something. But I mean, again, also people weren't even looking and people weren't. I mean, there was yeah. even this discussion There's of is HIV causing AIDS, which I mean, still surfaces all the time because people didn't want to know about it. Right. So, I mean, there's. Sure. Yes. But if you compare how much interest there is, of course, in COVID, which, yes, it's a very serious issue. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, I read mean, an article where, where they ask um, a virologist uh, about why don't we have vaccines for everything? And they, he said, like, there's two reasons, a biological one and um, one... And, people are jerks. Yeah, and, yeah, people are jerks. Well, he said, 
what what is the word a peinlich is an embarrassing one he said that there's an embarrassing reason and that it's just like we don't spend the money like we spend the money yeah. on lots of very expensive things especially like uh if you compare like defense budgets to research budgets you could easily make a ton of different vaccines develop them for i mean that's also evident now that we have diseases which are wiped out in europe like we don't get them in europe or north america or australia and they still exist um on the african continent and, and yep. you know in southeast asia or something and it's like that's because of political socioeconomic reasons yep. like we we could spend the money and try and just wipe this stuff out for good and we just we just don't which is yeah obscene i mean honestly yeah yeah i did also um kind of related to this i learned another word the other day which probably all of you have heard about before because it's making the rounds it's the idea that we have two different demics going on at the moment with the covid situation we have a pandemic but we also have an infodemic yeah i i heard that word as well now yeah so it's the idea of um lots of information moving around and um a lot of the information not always being real and kind of this balance between good scientific information and willingness for people to believe that information versus the bad, misleading, wrong information and, again, people's willingness to kind of invest in that instead. So, yeah, that was kind of a cool new cool new word yeah for me it's it's something this is a phenomenon that makes me very very frustrated and not necessarily because there's people who don't have the education to be able to decipher things that researchers say um to understand what's true and what's not or who lack the the time or resources to do fact checking on things that they get sent on facebook um the thing that annoys me most is um, is media outlets who are hunting for the controversy and they they invest in false balancing and they make it sound like there is a sort of equal opinions of we mm. have to have lockdown measures and we don't have to have lockdown measures when on any scale that you look at it like either on it's like sort of every single scientist and and intelligent government says this and then fred says that other thing yeah. so that's like give fred an equal but, time at the microphone yeah and this is something that really really deeply frustrates me mm. and i yeah i am <laughs> very out of out of ideas how to to deal with that because it's not something that you can do with individual some, some, action or anything no some good news that is related to this is that um and i, I can't i don't know where i saw this study so i'm not going to link it guys go look it up for yourself you have homework <laughs> Um, I saw All the information is on the internet. You just have to Google. <laughs> come into our <laughs> Telegram Google group and we have the truth. Conspiracies 2020. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, there was a discussion from a real live scientist um, <laughs> who seemed qualified at her job. Um, the, the discussion was about this infodemic and how there is a lot of fake information traveling around. But she found, or her team found, I guess, that this can be the easiest way to counter this is by just flooding the system with as much correct information as possible so this is basically what like the nhs or um the world health organization like this is what the main channels are doing yes they're trying to counter the fake um information but they're just trying to make sure that there's a huge volume of real information so yeah. that you kind of get like overwhelmed by the runners and that can really like the the simulations that, that um this scientist had done kind of shows that this can shift the tide of what people are ready to believe in. so that's that's really reassuring actually that is uh, that's true yeah um yeah that's actually not what i wanted to rant about <laughs> but it's also oh, something rant, yeah, I'm that some more, yeah, has more rants left 
Um, yeah, the thing that I wanted to complain a lot about a little bit starts off with a positive thing. Um, there's a Plantropology uh, podcast um, that just published an episode with Abby, Mo uh, Abby Morrison, who is a science communicator, and she works also in, in publishing and editing, um, where she t t uh, teaches researchers about the value of storytelling uh, for research papers but also for outreach uh, things and that was all very cool that's a podcast episode that I can really highly recommend the entire podcast I quite enjoy um, but Abby Morrison's episode was particularly uh, great uh, mm -hmm. but she said something that I found very true is that if you use jargon you are excluding people you are exclusive and it's something that struck mm -hmm. very home because um, I tried to sew something on on the weekend and I downloaded instructions from like a, a famous uh, editor in Germany I mean this is kind of related to what we we're talking about at the top of the podcast about yeah. the point of English language should be communication and it's the same with like if you want to do science you should be aiming to communicate I think it's like a really similar topic like whenever yeah. you're using specialized elitist language or slangs you are trying to like yeah you're excluding people yeah and I sorry you were sewing on the weekend yeah, I was sewing I downloaded from like an editor like a sewing instruction um, like a very classic one there's the, this border uh, brand in, in Germany that's sort of for for decades it's the standard go-to thing and i i couldn't understand anything in these instructions <laughs> like mm. i i know the basics of sewing i'm not particularly stupid and i couldn't understand the world was was going on there and it was because they used a lot of very very specific terminology um to the point that if you knew how to sew a, a pair of children's pants what was uh in the in this case then you could understand this. But if you don't know already mm. how to do the thing that you have the instructions for, you also can't use the instructions. And that's something that, like, just... I find this with origami. Like, it's like, now do a volley, valley fold and, I don't know, turn it in the direction of the rising sun and then, like, yeah. jump twice. I don't understand what the word... And I can follow it completely fine if it's a YouTube t tutorial. But the wording that they use or even, like, the pictorial instructions is just completely beyond me. And that I, I got really angry at this piece of paper um, for hiding this information from me um, and sort of showing me that there's an exclusive circle where I'm not part of that can understand these words <laughs> and I can't understand them. But they yeah. on the website and everywhere they say like, yeah, beginner's instruction. Uh, so everybody can can sew. Um, should we should we take a, a moment to to mock the fact that you feel excluded from a small niche of society and it's very hard for you being excluded? <laughs> as no, like no. What, what I w want to say with this is that um, this is what happens whenever you you use jargon and complicated words and things that are only known to your field in anything that you write and it can be like scientific text that can be outreach things that can be stuff on facebook and when you do that um first of all like some people will just be turned away some people will get angry at you and your profession for being so exclusive because you show them that they are not part of the thing that you do and and also you can't you can't pretend that you do outreach that you do the science for the public good if you do your science and if you document it in a way that only your friends and the people who already know the things can understand what you do. And now would be a good time to say, if you ever find that we use too much jargon, please correct us because yeah. we probably do in many cases. Um, and please feel free to reach out and chastise us and tell us <laughs> that we're very naughty. And I mean, we're trying to improve, obviously. And yeah. Yeah. yeah um, 
and it's just something that's just was just something that annoyed me and it did you sew the pants in the end i sewed the pants in the end and uh <laughs> they're, they're great i didn't use the instructions i used the knowledge of my mother-in-law <laughs> and um sort of common sense because there's only so many ways that's, you can put them together that's exactly what i often end up doing i mean i'm also the sort of person who doesn't like following the instructions because i mean i followed the instructions more, in, like so, <laughs> in so many new hobbies like for for beer brewing for like baking it's true. for you're woodworking the, for so many you're the guy who reads the manual and actually knows the different buttons on the iPhone and what they do. Whereas I'm the person who just hits all the buttons at the same time and hopes something happens. For so many disciplines, I... I, I was a beginner at one point and then read into this, followed an instruction and it worked um, considerably well because the instructions mm. were not written in an exclusive way. They were written in an inclusive way. They were written for people who don't know already what they are doing. And mm. yeah, and in this case... It's like, just beyond you, Yarm. It's just, it's just too complicated. I mean, that's something on, on the sewing. I'm taking also a sewing class and... Um, I realized like to, there's so much to sewing um, about like measurements and maths where you have to calculate and you have like stretch factors of fabric so you know then if you have like mm. I don't know 50 centimeters but it's just twenty uh, percent stretchy fabric then you have to like ac make account for that then you have to have like sort of a three dimensional um, imagination to know how to construct things how they will turn out like from flat 2d shapes yeah I do not have this how they will end up in a 3d sh uh, shape then you need to have like technical understanding of how the machine works so if something breaks you can fix it and continue sewing there's a lot of different skills in there which I quite like um, but yeah I just need the introduction to to do these things um yeah so that's my rant please be inclusive with your language i don't have a cat fact have you got a cat no. fact i have a crap fact it's not a cat fact it's a crap fact it's fine uh, <laughs> um so i was i bought a whole lot of bulbs from um, an online store i mentioned this a few weeks ago and one of the ones i bought is Sauromatum venosum, which is basically like this amorphophallus. So it's this kind of um, thing that shoots out of the ground and has like a long flowering tube and then it bursts open. And I noticed that it had opened based on the fact that two days ago in the morning, my room smelled suspiciously like crap um, because the purpose of this plant is in fact to attract flies um, and therefore it deliberately smells like poo in order to bring flies around to pollinate it. So at that point I forced <laughs> the plant into the, the face of my housemate and said smell this, smell this, isn't it amazing? And she was like I don't understand why you like plants so much, like this just doesn't make sense. Like, it's so cool and she's like it literally smells like crap to you and I'm like yeah 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 but it wants to smell <laughs> like crap like it's deliberately smelling like crap um and then I had to put it outside because we didn't want our entire house to smell like crap. But yeah, um, it's it's really cool to watch because you get this quite small like bulb thing. It might be a corm. I'm not sure. I think it's a corm. Um, and within like a week, it's made this huge long tube, and then it like bursts open, and the flower itself, like the floral, but kind of peels backwards, like a kind of banana skin, and there's just this like sticky, pointy bit, um, which is attracting all the flies for pollination, and it smells really, really bad. And then in a couple of days, that also dies as, as well. So it's like a really rapid process, and it's just really dramatic. I think it's a really, really dramatic plant. Did it work? Did you have a lot of flies in your room then? 
not in my room. I did put it outside fairly rapidly. Um, but yeah, it was doing its job. There was like multiple flies on it constantly. Yeah. I, I'm happy that I don't have a smelly, pooey plant. Ow. <laughs> but it's, I mean, it's, it's just really, really cool. It's just, yeah. I, I remember I, wanted, I went to the botanical garden. They have one of the very large ones that do the same thing. Um, yeah. But I missed the, the smelly face. We could still see sort of the exposed. Um, yeah, I think I went there with you, didn't yeah, I? Yeah, I think we went together. Uh, and yeah, I, I actually was happy that it didn't smell, although I was curious how it would be. Uh, but then I could have just like ordered some fart spray from Amazon and used that. No, I think uh, to me it's, it is impressive that you're looking at a plant and it does smell like like this kind of mental disconnect. You're like, wow, it's really it's really doing it. Like, it wants to smell like crap and it really does smell like crap. And like, <laughs> kudos to the plant. Like, yeah, no, well done. It's productive plant. as hell. <laughs> well done. <laughs> you did the thing yeah. that you evolved to do. Um, yeah, great. It's like a terrible thing, but well done to you. So if you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on all of the social media. On Twitter, you can talk to me. I'm at Plants Pipettes. We're at Plants and Pipettes on Facebook and Instagram. There you're normally talking to me. Uh, we have a website, uh, plantsandpipettes.com, where we publish uh, twice a week uh, exciting articles. This week we talked, actually you talked about, uh, first of all, our favorite bits for uh, Fascination of Plants Day and mm -hmm. um, very straightforward, cheap, cheaply made uh, Rhizotron's uh, root analysis platforms made from CD cases. Um, yeah, that's quite a cool paper. And I also um, discussed a little bit why it's so important to have these kind of cheap, accessible science methods um, and linked to the special issue that came out in that journal, which kind of has a whole lot of different um, cheap methods which are available. So I think I would really encourage you to go and check out our post and then also check out that special issue. And uh, for next week, we have our 50th episode coming up. So we take your Ooh. questions, uh, send us anything that you want to send us. Um, tell us when you listen to us, what you like best. Uh, ask us anything. Just send us stuff. So we have something. Otherwise, we'll, it will just be silence for 90 minutes next week. Your choice. And if at least 10 of you contact us, Yoram will sing a song. <laughs> uh, but one of my choosing um and it will be the song oh, that really? i always sing to my it's gonna my be toxic boy to no 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 it's a my milkshake Kellis. Kellis. no no it's it will be the lullaby i always sing so in the, in the mm, hopes that, that my so little exciting. baby will okay maybe i choose something else and if it doesn't excite you anyway <laughs> send us your stuff um and then uh, also write us on itunes please uh, but yeah, and also comment on on the rating if you think Yoram should put more effort into exciting the audience <laughs> with his songs. Uh, sorry, Yoram. It will be I'm terrible not not any, anyway, like no matter what I do. Um, yeah. Goodbye. Goodbye. Opening, Did closing we do the music. opening and closing music? Caravana by, by Philip Gross. Goodbye. Sorry, Philip. Yeah, bye. <laughs>